2: Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law.
1: Good day and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead and I'm a California Bar Admitted Attorney and I'm also a Bankruptcy Law Certified Specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. In addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. And because of my education, my training, my experiences, my life's observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance and the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities, including tribal communities, and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. Yes, bankruptcy law, because it intersects with just about every other area of the law, and with parties in interest on just about every rung of the economic food chain, and because it has, in my belief, anyway, as its ultimate goal to help the honest but unfortunate person dig him or herself out of a financial hole that would otherwise totally disrupt his or her life or the family's lives. I also practice some related fields in my overall consumer and small business financial practice, including debt, wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now, with these areas of law as my reference points, that is to say, as they relate to the personal, familial, community, and small business aspects of finance, I spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before and after getting my license to practice law, fighting for the economic empowerment, the economic independence, and the economic autonomy of women and people and communities of color, including indigenous people. And because I grew up as a military brat and also helped create a new one with my former spouse, who was also in the military, I have firsthand knowledge of just how hard it can be sometimes financially and economically for our citizen soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and marines, and their families in our less than sometimes patriotic capital-based economic system, especially after these individuals and their families separate from the service. As such, I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military, really in remembrance and reflection of my wonderful All military father. (laughs) And because I had the great fortune uh, to both know and spend a lot of time with and actually became great friends with both my maternal and paternal grandmothers, both of whom survived what I describe as the four great economic challenges of the 20th century, that is to say, the Great Depression, the privations of World War II, and the systemic racism and misogyny that we must admit continues through into today. And as these women helped raise me and always loved me and shared with me some of the great stories of their grandparents who raised and loved them in the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow South. And it's out of my great love and respect for these women who are always with me, along with my great dad in spirit, urging me on to do the right thing, that when the situation is right, I am sometimes able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors and the disabled who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more, the victims of some of the most pernicious forms of adult and elder financial abuse, including neglect, you could ever imagine that's running rampant in our society today. So the purpose of Selwyn's Law, in case you haven't guessed it, is to discuss the law related to your money, and more probably than not these days, the lack thereof or at least an insufficient amount thereof, and your overall finances and what you may need to consider to protect and or reclaim and or rehabilitate your or your families or your small businesses, financial health, wealth, and money-related well-being, as I understand these concepts in this non-threatening educational forum. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show doesn't provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information that might be helpful to you as you begin your more detailed search with more detailed information that is tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provides you with at least a general outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your assets and or your debt. So today we will conclude our discussion on what We all need to know about our banking and other depository financial institutions, how they work, uh, how they are regulated and supervised. This so we can obtain the knowledge we need to not only protect our own liquid and near liquid assets deposited into these and held by these institutions and used by these institutions to make a profit off of the recirculation of our money, if they are banks or brokerage houses, or to engage in nonprofit collectivist capitalism if they are credit unions. This also, but it's just as important so we can gain the knowledge and wisdom we need to be able to not only distinguish between some of the asinine political rhetoric we hear espoused every day by some, not all, but some, not all, but many politicians and we want to be able to separate that from the real facts that will enable us to make wise choices when we go to the polls on Election Day, such that we vote in our best economic, political, and community empowerment-based best interest, and thereby elect in the first instance or allow to stay in office only those politicians who put our needs first and spend their time on our dime undertaking the necessary research so they can implement laws and perform the necessary oversight of those in the executive branch or even in independent agencies that is needed to assure the safety and soundness of the institutions housing our money and not waste our time on our dime focusing on their narcissistic need to spread their homemade horse manure that is focused on non-existent anti-worker, anti-critical race theory based culture wars that keep we the people apart or at each other's throats while they these clearly Sometimes immoral politicians spend our tax dollars laying the foundation for them to take the really big bucks from the big business interests that want to weaken the oversight necessary to make sure that our money is safe and sound, and as such, they're acting not in our best interests. Now, since we've been focusing on this subject matter for the last several weeks, we've looked at seven main topics First, we took a look at the structure of the balance sheets of banks in general and Silicon Valley Bank in particular, which was heavily invested in and funded by the deposits of technology startups and their venture capitalists, as well as the owners of these business ventures. And we discovered that, in fact, it was the over-concentration of one type of banking company Uh, Customer as both the bank's sources of funds from these deposits, as well as its uses of funds to make personal and business loans, right back into the same set of entrepreneurs and their businesses that turned out to be a major problem for Silicon Valley Bank. Then next we took a look at some of the technical financial reasons why Silicon Valley Bank failed, including the economic relationship between inflation and the interest rate increases and we hope decreases, but they didn't materialize, the interest rate increases that have been implemented by the Fed to deal with inflation. And we also looked at the relationship between interest rates and the value of bonds that are held to matur- maturity, as well as the inverse relationship between bond prices and bond yields. And we discovered that while the over-concentration of account holders in the technology sector may have led the predicate It was also true, and it could be objectively substantiated, that the marketplace timing and kind, quality, and duration of Silicon Valley Bank's bond holdings and other economic factors and other economic conditions running rampant today played a more substantial role in the bank's demise. Then we also looked at the fact that on March 17, 2023, Silicon Valley Bank's parent, SVB Financials filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the Southern District of New York in order to find buyers for its non-bank assets. Um, and uh, those assets were turned over to a receiver. That case is denominated as re SVB Financial Group, case number 2310376. Then I stepped us all through the regulatory actions taken by Silicon Valley Bank's California regulators, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, in order to preserve as many of Silicon Valley Bank's assets as possible by placing it under the receivership of the FDIC while the FDIC looked for entities and individuals who wanted to purchase these assets. Then we looked at some of the public information about a bank out of North Carolina known as First Citizens Bank, and we looked at the history of its owners, and that's the entity with whom the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation uh, brokered a deal and sold uh, most are sold $72 billion worth of Silicon Valley's assets, uh, 52 billion of the, its deposits and 17 of its branches to this entity and its newly named Silicon Valley Bank, a division of First Citizen. And then we looked at how um, the FDIC provides insurance function to banks. And then last week, we looked at credit unions and their supervisory process and the entity, the National Credit Union Administration and other governmental agencies that regulate the safety and soundness of these nonprofit organizations. So when we come back, we'll take a look at the final agency, the Securities Investors Protection Corporation, a non-governmental organization that provides oversight and ensures some but not all of the funds that we deposit into brokerage houses, such as Charles Swab or Fidelity. But first, we'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side.
2: Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead.
1: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue include our discussion about what it is that we all need to know about our banking and other depository financial institutions, how they work and how they are regulated and supervised, including what mechanisms and safeguards uh, in our financial institutions and in our overall financial institutions regulatory systems. What are they that focuses us on ensuring that our liquid and near-liquid assets are safe and sound when we deposit them into banks and other financial institutions by looking at our final agency, the Security Investors Protection Corporation, which is a non-governmental organization that provides oversight and ensures some, but not all, of the funds we deposit in brokerage houses, like, such as Charles Schwab or Fidelity. But first off, why does all of this matter? Well, hopefully most of you out there in Radioland have a mixed portfolio of short, intermediate, and long-term personal property assets in addition to some interest in real estate. Also, by having some of your liquid and near-liquid assets in places other than banks, such as having them in federally insured credit unions, which, insure, which should be insured up to $250,000 that we discussed last week. And we also should consider having some cash or money market accounts and or stocks and bonds in brokerage houses that are insured by the Securities Investors Protection Corporation up to $500,000 per account. You you know, you that by doing that, by spreading the risk, as it were, you are in a better position to not have to undergo even a short term uh, um, failure of ass, asset access to your assets, because <laughs> it's very highly unlikely that um, your bank and your credit union and your brokerage house is going to go down all at the same time. So first, let's look at what's up with stocks and bonds. And why is there a need for our government to be involved in ensuring these assets in the first place? Well, we're going to hop into Selwyn's Wayback Machine and visit America on October 29, 1929. I wasn't really around there, but again, we're in my Wayback Machine. So what happened on that date? Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Okay, you, Ms. Whitehead. Well... According to the editors of History.com, the stock market crash of 1929 occurred on October 29, 1929, and that's when Wall Street investors traded some 16 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day. Billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors in the aftermath of the event, something called Black Tuesday America and the rest of the industrialized world spiraled downward into the Great Depression, the deepest and longest lasting economic downturn in history of the Western industrialized world up until that time. That led the government to pass the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. So what up, what's up with the Securities Exchange Act? Well, It was created to govern securities transactions on the secondary market. That is to say, after the initial market of a stock, it's traded on the secondary market where where the owners of it buy and new people buy and sell the stock over the course of time. Now, its goal was to ensure greater financial transparency and accuracy and less fraud and manipulation. The Securities Exchange Act authorize the formation of the, exger- the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. It's the regulatory arm of the Security Exchange Act. Now, the SEC has the power to oversee stocks and bonds and over-the-counter securities, as well as the markets and the conduct of financial professionals, including brokers, dealers, and investment advisors. It also monitors the financial pro- reports of publicly traded companies that are required to disclose and store that information on the Securities and Exchange Commission's website for all of us to be able to go and check out a company. Now, the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 was enacted by the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, and I've already shared with you my high admiration for that particular president. It was in response to the widely held belief that irresponsible financial practices were one of the chief causes of the 1929 stock market crash. So the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, followed by the Securities Act of 1933, required corporations to make public certain financial information, including stock sales and distributions, including insider trading sales and and the like. Other regulatory measures put by Put forth by the Roosevelt administration included the Public Utilities Holding Act of 1935, the Trust Indenture Act of 1934, the Investors Advisors Act of 1940, and the Investment Company Act of 1940. They all came in the wake of the financial environment in which commerce and securities was subjected previous to that, to little regulation and control. And they were controlled by corporations that amassed a relatively few investors without much going on in, as far as the public place of knowledge, the knowledge by the public in general. So with that historical context, let's take a look at the Securities Investors Protection Corporation. It is a nonprofit corporation created by an act of Congress to protect clients of brokerage firms that are forced into bankruptcy. The Securities Protection Investors Protection and members include all brokers and dealers registered under the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934, all members of securities exchanges, and most members of the National Association of Insurance Dealers, also known as NASD. So the Securities Investors Protection Act provides coverage for these companies, for their investors, in case the firms fail. Now, this SIPC is an insurance that provides brokerage customers up to $500,000 for the cash and securities that are held by the firms to allow the investors to conduct their trading. You have to remember, though, Cash is limited up to $250,000. And although there is the possibility of another $250,000 worth of coverage for your stocks and bonds and money market funds... They will be capped at what they were on the day that the business failed. Meaning at those of you who are involved in the stock market know that just because you paid $10 for a stock tomorrow, it might be worth nothing. So that's what I want you to understand. That's why it's kind of the coverage is kind of couched up to $500,000 up to $250 in cash but you might not get your whole 250 back in your stocks and bonds because the value might have gone down in between the time you purchased it and the date that the brokerage company goes bankrupt. Okay. So, um, so while, you know, The auspices of the Securities Exchange Act and the Securities and Exchange Commission attempt to monitor the conduct of the major players in the securities uh, industry. The Securities Investors Protection Corporation acts as the insurance facility for the funds that are used by people who place their assets in brokerage houses so they can engage in trading in the marketplace. Now the Securities Investors Protection Act had its origins, not at the time of the stock market crash, but it it came later on the scene. There were difficult years uh in the stock marketplace in 1968 through 1970 um when there was a lot of unexpected high volume trading that was followed by a very severe decline in stock prices um, hundreds of brokers dealers went out of business they merged or they were acquired by other businesses some were unable to meet their obligations to their customers when they went bankrupt So public confidence in the United States securities market was in jeopardy. So Congress acted swiftly, unlike the way they do today, but they acted swiftly and they passed the Securities Investor Protection Act of 1970. And um, that caused the birthing of the SIPC. It was there to assist investors who were kind of captive of financially troubled brokerage firms and they might lose their money and their securities forever. So that's where the SIPC comes in. And it basically is a bankruptcy process. One of its main duties is to oversee the liquidation of SIPC member brokerage firms. And it's through a specific set of codes and regulations that are part of the bankruptcy code that I talk about periodically here on this show. The idea is to put a trustee in charge so the trustee can find the books and records, identify who the owners of these stocks and money uh, belong to and communicate with them and set up a procedure to liquidate the assets of the brokerage house so they can pay the people with um, accounts that are higher than the statutory limits of $500,000. But if you have under that amount, there's an expedited process where you can quickly get in touch with the trustee and get your money out. So... I hope I have given you some insight as to how you can protect your liquid and near liquid assets in today's volatile, uh, strange depository um, marketplace that we all must endure. The idea is to get as much knowledge as you can, closely guard your assets because they might be the only thing that keeps you inside your house and not living out on the streets with no funds at all. So we're going to leave it there for now, but as always in closing, at Selwyn's Law, I like to say we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including laws and regulations implemented by our government and non-governmental agencies to safeguard our hard-earned dollars when we deposit them in federal or state-regulated financial institutions for our greater good. So I'm going to leave it there for now. Till next time, take care. Bye for now.
2: Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar and your rights are protected by all. Our laws, protect your money, know your rights, partner with Selwyn Whitehead for immediate assistance. Or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program
0: is sponsored by the law office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content.